DJ PK and John Pessa, author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask about Yogi Berra. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. John, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. So, I grew up in Southern California with a dad who baseball was his number one sport, and he was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up in San Diego. I don't know. And when they moved to L.A., he said, but he knew all about the Yankees and the Giants, and he talked about Yogi Berra, and he talked about Mickey Mantle, and he talked about Duke Snyder and all these guys. But for a lot of people listening to this right now, it's way before their time. What about Yogi Berra makes him relevant today? Why is the Yogi Berra story important for someone to learn now who is a couple generations removed from ever seeing him play? Well, I mean, Yogi Berra is sort of uh, um, woven into our fabric. I mean, every, everyone knows who Yogi Berra is, even if you didn't watch him play baseball. Um, whether it's the sayings, whether it's upstaging the Aflac Duck on, on his commercials, uh, whether he's uh, leading the, the New York Philharmonic after 9-11 to raise funds for New York City. I mean, he's just a part of, of, of America and really um, a big part of, of uh, believing in the American dream. It came from, uh, um, you know, Depression era uh, St. Louis and becomes in the 50s just about the most famous man in America. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, was born in Orange, right down the street from Montclair, and my mother's Italian, so Yogi Berra has been a big influence in our lives here because of what he stood for. There's so many things that I can go into in this interview. I'll start it off. I've been reading the book. I'm not all the way through, but the just the idea of how he got the name through... Uh, yogis in India, but he was he was called Laudy because his immigrant parents couldn't pronounce Larry. All sorts right. of funny stuff there. Tell us about Lawrence. That. Right. I mean, he grew up in uh, you know it's called the Hill in St. Louis, which is um, uh, not predominantly, almost exclusively Italian. In fact, Italian was what was spoken um, in his in his neighborhood. His mother never. Uh, um, Learned how to speak English. She understood it. So you know, Italian was was it. And the the big thing about about getting the nickname uh, Yogi is that the great Branch Rickey, who brought Jackie Robinson in and was credited with developing the farm system and was supposed to be the greatest talent evaluator of all time, passed on uh, on Lordy Barra. Didn't think he was going to make it. Told him to his face he would be no more than a Triple A baseball player. Um, he didn't make many mistakes, but that certainly was was a big one. Yogi goes into uh, American Legion ball for two years, and uh, that's where a friend who eventually makes it to the New York Giants as a as a utility infielder um, saw a movie um, with Yogi's in it. Said that's uh, Yogi looks like that when he uh, with his arms folded and his leg folded before he hit. So I'm going to call him Yogi which was one of the greatest gifts anyone ever gave anybody because, you know, first-name basis with America is rare, and, you know, Yogi Berra has it. 15-time All-Star, 14 World Series. He won 10 of them. What made him such a winner? Okay, timing's got to be part of it because you got to have the, the whole team in baseball and you have the pitching and all that, but he was there for so much of it. What, what was his biggest contribution to all that winning? 
I'll tell you the the you know one of the things that that people overlook and, and I certainly did. I I got Yogi when he was a backup outfielder. I was born in '52, saw him in '60. Um, he was a back a backup outfielder, still a really good hitter. Uh, my father was a huge Yankee fan, and Yogi Berra was his favorite player. So you kind of figure out why I end up writing this book. And he told me that this guy was one of the most dynamic players he'd ever seen. So I really wanted to go back, look at the clips, watch the, the video clips about him. And from 49 to 53, the Yankees win five straight World Series championships. And uh, that was the end of DiMaggio's career. Um, the beginning of Mantle's career, the dominant player on that team was Yogi Berra, 20-plus home runs, 100-plus RBIs, 290 to 320 hitter. But the thing that I think answers your question the most is the guy was an unbelievable catcher, uh, which, which he always credited to Bill Dickey because he wasn't much of a catcher until Bickey, Dickey got a hold of him in 49. And once he fixed all of Yogi's uh, mechanical flaws, um, out comes this great catcher, and Yogi had like a uh, photographic memory. He could tell you how they got Al Kaline out four years uh, earlier with man on second, two outs in the seventh inning. Um, he was like a computer before there were computers. And the, pit, uh, the pitching staff, who didn't like pitching to him at the beginning, just sat back and, and everything the guy called, they, they, uh, they took. And Don Larson, who pitched the perfect game in, in, the, uh, in the World Series, told me, Yogi called 97, 96 pitches. I threw every one of them. Wherever Yogi put the mitt, that's what I hit. We were both in the zone, and that's why we had a perfect game and laid so much of the, uh, of the credit uh, on his catcher. So you speak of Yogi Berra's intelligence, and it was interesting in reading that he desperately wanted out of high school. Or school. He just wanted out. He wanted to drop out. His father was saying, what are, what are you talking about baseball? I mean, that, the, that's a bum's game. Uh, you need to go get a job and support a family. And his older brothers then, along with the priest over there, St. Ambrose on the hill uh, in that area. I've been over there. It really is. It's it's it's, fi- it's as fine a little Italy place as I've ever been, actually. Oh, absolutely. Just, I, I, yeah. I love my time there. Yeah, and so he gets them, and all these people get involved to commit to uh, allowing his father to get him to go uh, away, so uh, out of school, because basically that's all he wanted to do was to play ball. And even though Garagiola, his across-the-street neighbor on Elizabeth Street, obviously I've been on that street, uh, was the more higher-rated prospect at the time, it seems like reading is that Yogi really never lost faith that he could do what he eventually did. He had a he had an inner confidence in his ability that, despite Branch Rickey's telling him he couldn't play, despite walking into clubhouses and the clubhouse men took one look at him and thought he was there for a tryout, so gave him old ratty uniforms. Um, despite so many people telling him he was never going to make it, he had this incredible inner confidence that that he could do it. If you took a look at the guy, it looked like he was put together with spare parts, good spare parts, but you know his arms were long, his torso was long, he had short, stubby legs, he had shoulders that hit his neck. I mean, this guy looked more like a wrestler than a baseball player. And as, as you mentioned, across the street neighbor Joe Garagiola, you know, by the time he was 15 years old, the six foot, 170 pounds, good looking, um, uh, looked like a baseball player. Yogi looked, you know, like I said, more like a wrestler. But once he got on the field, um, all the doubts disappeared. I mean, the guy hit the ball incredibly 
incredibly hard. You couldn't get anything by him because he was a great bad ball hitter and um, just a, just a phenomenal, phenomenal player that so many people underrated. Winning's critical, and being talented is critical, but to become the guy that you were describing earlier in this interview with Yogi, he had to have something in his personality that really connected with people. So where does the, where does the charm, where does the sizzle, where does all that personality come from? Well, I think, well, actually, there, there's, there's two yogis. I mean, the one, the, the, the public yogi, who is funny, talkative, um, and and on the field that was true. He wouldn't stop talking to batters at the plate. He had a running commentary every game with the umpires. Off the field, I talked to people who were his teammates. I talked to his friends growing up. I talked to the people who he, he uh, lived with the last 30, 40 years of his life in Montclair, New Jersey. Off the field, Yogi was quiet to the point of almost being shy. Um, so there, there really was two different, um, two different people there. I think what made Yogi special was he took so much abuse, verbal abuse, um, for a good chunk of his life and, and his career, um, as well as discrimination for being an Italian-American, which I didn't understand until I did the research, just how much discrimination uh, that he faced. And I think, well, that kind of abuse, and I'm talking about um, columns in the New York Times titled Nature Boy, having his, his own coach, manager, call him the ape. I mean, things like that, ugliest man in baseball. While some people might turn bitter, Yogi looked at it and always treated people the way he wanted to be treated. And I, and I really do think that was a secret to his success for being uh, as beloved as he was. The guy just never wanted to talk about himself, never put anybody down, was just the, just the nicest guy and somebody that was like just your neighborhood person. You talk about how he was this little stumpy dude, uh, but uh, one of the things that displayed his athletic ability and got some notice is I think it was in Legion Ball. He once stole home without even sliding. Without even sliding. The the, the incredible thing about Yogi that nobody um, ever ever thought. Uh, yeah, when you think of Yogi, is he was fast. I mean, he was he. You know, you didn't have to pinch run for him. You know, you used to have to pinch run for catchers in the, in the late innings if you were down a run or so. Guy could go first or third with anybody. He played the outfield for a long time. And he was uh, surprisingly fast, had a great arm, very quick. Uh, but he, you know, he was just an all-around terrific athlete. I talked to all of his friends, excuse me, all the friends I could find growing up on the hill, um, you know, about five or six people who were still around in their 90s. And they said anything this kid picked up, any field that he stepped on, he was automatically the best player from day one. So when you talk to all these people, what are some of the smaller anecdotes about his life that really stuck with you? Well, I'll tell you, one was uh, he was a natural right-handed hitter, and his brothers, who, as you mentioned, convinced his father to let him get the chance that they didn't. Yogi, to his dying day, uh, insisted that his oldest brother, Tony, was the best player in the family. Um, they told him, hey, if you want, if you want to make the pros, uh, left-handed hitters uh, uh, have a better chance. So he just turned around and batted left. Um, so... Uh, he also came very, very close to being a, uh, an outfielder. 
um, after the 1948 season, which is two years into his career, uh, he um, finished the year 50 games in, in right field, and everyone wrote, and Yogi even agreed that his days as a catcher were over. And they, it turns out the manager was fired in an argument with the general manager. Casey Stengel is hired. He brings back Bill Dickey specifically to coach Yogi Berra because, you know, back in those days, if you hit 230, knocked in 40 runs, but called a good game, you're, you were a 12-year veteran a catcher. And he figured, if I got a guy who can do that, plus the kind of hitter he is, then I really have something special. One, one I'll leave you with one last one. I think um, in, just in case um, your listeners don't remember the incident at the, at the Copacabana, there was a big fight there uh, with a bunch of Yankees and then late at night and a bunch of bowlers who were heckling Sammy Davis Jr., and Yogi was there, and they were all fined, um, and it just stuck with them the whole year. Well, Yogi didn't want to go that night. He was in a slump, and he wanted to just stay home, and his wife, Carmen, convinced him to go. And she felt bad about that for years and years afterwards, knowing that had she listened to her husband, he would have been sleeping at home instead of being with Mickey Merrill, Billy Martin, and Whitey Ford in the headlines of a huge fight at the uh, Copacabana Club in New York. This really doesn't have anything to do with anything, but it entertained me. When he was in the minor leagues the year before he went in the service, he was living in a boarding house with a pitcher, and they're paying 7 bucks a week. And the pitcher's name was Bob Sucky. That's got to be an awful name to be a pitcher, right? <laughs> you guys, I've heard a lot of bad, game, uh, bad names, but um, coming into pitch, uh, Bob Sucky. Not, not exactly something that's going to get the fans on their feet uh, clapping for, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> but back then, I mean, you know, that was right before the uh, actually the war was going on when Yogi played in Norfolk. Norfolk is the head of the of the uh, for the Navy, and uh, this little town suddenly is. Uh, you know, bustling with with uh, workers and sailors, so much so that you couldn't even get into a restaurant. And the ninety dollars a month that Yogi was paying seventy something dollars after taxes, he didn't have enough money for food. And one day he just stages his own um, uh, strike where he just uh, falls down, rolling on the floor, saying his stomach hurt and he couldn't play. And his manager, uh, his other catcher, was hurt. And he looks at Yogi, figures out what's happening, reaches in the pocket, gives him a couple of bucks, and says, go out and get yourself a, you know, a hot dog hamburger and, and a Coke, and then come back and catch, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, I read that too. Now batting, sucky. <laughs> <laughs> Number 21, sucky. You would think that if you're going to become a, prof- a professional ball player, that you might think about changing your last name. Had a college uh, roommate who did that. His last name was Feast, and he was tired of Feces jokes growing up, and he turned 18 and changed his last name to Andrews. So I'm done with there that. There you go. Yep. Well, John, well, we have- I mean, Mr. Sucky never really made it into the majors, <laughs> and maybe that was the problem. John, we appreciate a few minutes. Good luck with the book, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. A lot of stories. We appreciate it. Thanks. Sure thing. Thank you. DJ PK coming up next. Ryan Abraham, USCfootball.com. The Trojans with seven four-star recruits turning everything around. We'll talk with Ryan about that next. And now, attention. Top of the wire on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network.
A majority of sports fans surveyed by ESPN said they favor watching TV sports without fans rather than waiting for sports to resume only when fans can be in attendance. 65% of the fans were in favor of sports returning with no fans in the stands. That number grew to 76% when participants were asked if they support the return of sports without fans in the stands, if players were kept in hotels, and their contact with each other closely monitored. Women's flag football will be a varsity sport at NAI schools by next year under a two-year partnership with the NFL. University of Louisville received a notice of allegations from the NCAA on Monday, including one level well in allegation involving improper recruiting offers for former signee Brian Bowen II. Top of the Wire is brought to you by Syringa Networks. Syringa Networks is home to complete business and telecom and IT solutions backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st Century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. You ever think you could have been a competitive eater? No. Take the structure out of it. I could eat a half gallon ice cream right now. Okay, how quick? In uh, 20 minutes. That's one segment, Lloyd. Are we ready to do this on the air? Now? The thing is, it's just not my thing anymore. You just threw it out there that you could eat a half gallon ice cream in 20 minutes. Yeah, well, you could jump on a donkey naked and ride it. But But it's not your thing anymore. (laughs) Is it your thing? Do you want to do it? Okay, how many mozzarella sticks could you eat? In one sitting. In one sitting in 20 minutes. Probably 20. I've got a half gallon of ice cream in front of me, and Scotty's got 20 mozzarella sticks in front of him. Who finishes first? Do either one of us finish? And Lloyd's got a donkey. (laughs) Hanson Scotty. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, and Ryan Abraham joining us. USCfootball.com. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. Get to talk a little football during this crazy quarantine stuff. Well, you know, the last few times you've been on, we've been talking about all the things that are wrong with USC football. But now we're here to talk about what's right. The high school kids are flocking to USC. How much of this is uh, staff changes? How much of it is one key staff member? How much of this is something else? Why is everything trending so well for the Trojans? Yeah, it's so weird. They had their worst recruiting class in internet history uh, last year, the class of 2020, and now they're in the top 10. They were a top five at one point, and they've had seven commitments over the past, like, six weeks. So it's been a very different road going forward, and obviously it's a, a weird time because you can't have visits. It's an extended dead period from the NCAA, but to me, it's really about the effort that's been put in by the new coaching staff and bringing in an entirely new defensive staff you have the you know pac-12 current pac-12 recruiter of the year and dante williams that came down from oregon craig niver has been a relentless recruiter coming over from texas so i feel like it's really been they've hired a bunch of coaches that know recruiting is the lifeblood of college football and they've just hit the ground running i think they've sold that tradition of usc and uh, it's been working well i mean they get a kid brandon campbell from tennessee committed a four-star running back that's I'm, i'm sorry from texas not from tennessee Who's committed? He's never even been to campus, so we'll see if they ever keep it going. And they, you know, obviously, if you have a season, they want to have some positive momentum on the field. But just having a good staff in place that is putting an effort, you're so showing the results right now. So this Dante Williams is an interesting character. 
uh, for me. Went to Idaho State, which is up the street from us. Got his start in coaching at Harbor College. And I covered Harbor College for the Daily Breeze back in the 90s. And my whole goal on Saturday night sitting in their press box was to not fall asleep. Because Harbor <laughs> College sucked. I don't know if they still do. But the Seahawks played. They were a good baseball school under Jim O'Brien. Actually played ball at BYU. Uh, but... It was known in the South Bay that Camino was the good football school and Harbor was the good baseball school, and Harbor College sucked. Then he goes to Camino the next year. Then he goes to Mount Sac. Then Nevada. These are like consecutive years. Becomes a grad assistant at Washington, and then boom, San Jose, San Jose, Arizona, Nebraska, Oregon. And then he moves. So he's like a one-year deal. And I read a thing in the Times, and DJ saw it too, where he's talking about he's going to take back what's rightfully SC's. Uh, What did SC do to be able to get him away from Oregon? Because Oregon had to be a pretty good situation. It was a pretty good situation. I think there was a combination of things. And he, you know, he built, you talked about those stops in Southern California. You build those relationships with the JCs and the high schools. And I think that's something that Dante Williams has been able to do. He obviously relates to the players very well. And he's it, worked, you know, he's, he's just been a relentless recruiter. I think it worked well in Nebraska when he was there. And it was a great situation in Oregon. He did have a family member in Southern California that there were some illnesses there. So there was, uh, you know, there was an underlying reason that he would want to go, but I feel like the new athletic department, Mike Bowen, Brandon Sosnow have come in and really been, you know, taking this kind of professional attitude to negotiating and trying to convince people to come to USC. They didn't break the bank to bring him in. Uh, he was getting paid really well up in uh, up in Oregon, but I think they showed him, hey, here's the things you could do when you're at USC. You know, giving him, you know, giving him more money, but not necessarily, you know, breaking the bank, like I said, and putting him in a situation where he could have a multi-year deal, come back to Southern California with his family, and really go out there and recruit. So I, I think the approach that this new, you know, now having a professional athletic department instead of just former football players that don't know what they're doing, I think that was a big part of it. So they were able to convince him to come down, and it's a big reason why they're having this recruiting success right now. So we always thought that Clay had some support on campus, right? They had the president in his corner, but the boosters just couldn't stand him. Uh, But fans, boosters are fans. They're just fans with more money, and they can be pretty fickle. Is everybody on board now, or he's got to go out and win the conference before everybody's on board? Yeah, he's everyone's not on board. There's there's people that are. They've won some people over, and I think building some of that momentum. Now, it hurt them not to be able to have spring football because fans, a lot of the boosters – wanted to see more physical practices. They wanted to see the defensive coaches recruit more because they were kind of part-time recruiters for the most part. They're doing that. But they didn't get to see what they wanted to see, which was spring football, tackling, more hitting, and and not the kind of soft approach that really this team has kind of had the last couple of years. So I think that's hurt Clay Hilton a little bit, that they didn't get to showcase what the new schemes were going to be and what the new attitude on the practice field was going to be. But he has won some of the people – back over but you know people still remember getting crushed by Oregon people remember the last game where you got crushed by Iowa even though Keaton Slovis got hurt and missed half that game but I feel like he's going to have to win a bunch of games to even attempt to win some of the people over there's there's some fans guys that just want Clay Helton gone it doesn't matter and I, I think they're looking for what the bar needs to be they don't want to see a team go nine and three and lose to like Notre Dame Alabama and Oregon and bring Clay Helton back. They want this team to be able to compete with those 
you know, top caliber program. So it's, it's, I'm curious to see what the bar really will be if they're going to, you know, give Clay Helton another year, especially with this coronavirus stuff going on. But he hasn't won over the majority of the fans yet. He's won over some, but I think winning on the field is the only thing that's going to win over some of those other fans. And it, it might take a couple of years of that to win over the diehards that just don't want him to be the head coach. So what's going on with JT Daniels? So I, with the new, uh, the latest that we've heard from the NCAA and the, uh, the, the exemption that you could allow, one-time exemption and transfer without penalty, we thought that would go into play this year. And I think that's the main reason that JT Daniels entered the, the transfer portal so we could kind of look at his different options if he was able to transfer this year and be able to play right away, where he'd have three years to play instead of two. Now that it looks like that's going to be delayed until 2021, I feel like he's likely going to come back. I don't think he wants to transfer out and sit out a year. He could stay back at USC for one year and then graduate early and then move on and and have two years to play somewhere else. So uh, I think that's the ideal situation. It's similar to what Max Brown did when he transferred out of USC, but without the ability to transfer and be eligible right away, I just, it's hard for me to picture him leaving right now. There's probably going to be opportunities this year, depending on, you know, when the season starts, if it starts at all, because, you know, we've, we've seen Keaton Slovis get hurt. We've seen all the quarterbacks at USC get hurt. So just being the backup at USC, he'd probably get, you know, some opportunities to play and at least show people he's recovered from the knee surgery and then have a better landing spot for those two years and transfer after this year. So my guess would be, guys, that it's going to be he's going to come back and stick around. Similar to Matt Fink went in the transfer portal last year and then came back. My gut says that that's probably going to happen with JT as well. So the governor, Gavin Newsom, was not bullish on the NFL playing in the fall in the state of California. What are the odds? What do people there feel about college football in the fall? It's so all over the place. And because of, at least with the NFL, you have Roger Goodell, who's the bizarre you know there's he's he's, he's going to make the call and i think they're going to keep going forward and um he could put pressure on governors like gavin newsom to um to have football and it, you know we're starting to see california open up a little bit and we, we got a lot of time so i it's i think there's still optimism for that with college football it's so weird because there's no one that runs it there's nobody running college football and we're hearing different things from all the different commissioners where Larry Scott's saying it's like all for one, one for all. Everyone, you know, we're all going to play or none of us going to play. And you have other commissioners like in the ACC and the SEC saying like, you know, in the ACC you have Clemson's going to play. I mean, their their things are opened up in in that state and in that community. Where for Boston College are they going to want to open up or no? And even that like in the in the Group of Five, the the American Athletic Club, you got Tulane and uh, in New Orleans, that's going to be a lot different than some of the other states. So. I think it's it's going to be regionalized and there's going to be pressure on some of the commissioners to do things that maybe they don't want to do. Uh, so I, it's just hard to say at this point. But I, I feel like I'm optimistic they're going to have to have a season because it would be devastating to college athletics. But will it be on time? Will it be delayed a couple of weeks? Will it be delayed in the spring? I don't think we need to know that for you know, another like month and a half or so. But it will start to be getting to crunch time when you're getting to June. Uh, and, and you know when you need six weeks lead time to get into the season, you got to start making these decisions. And, and it's when the students could get back on campus too. So I just don't think we know at this point, but it's going to be so convoluted in college just because we don't have that singular leader like you have in the NFL. 
You mentioned that running back from Texas. I'm interested as far as how they're recruiting and able to get running backs because with Harrell in there, obviously they're throwing the ball. Slovis looks so good. Pittman goes to the NFL, but I can argue that uh, you know maybe he was the best guy last year, but he doesn't have the best pro potential. So the point being, they've got several receivers coming down the line there. They're going to be good in the next couple of years. What are they going to do? Because SC has been known for all sorts of great running backs. I'm wondering how the offense is going to incorporate those running backs knowing that the air raid type of the philosophy is there. Yeah, I think you get a guy like Brandon Campbell out of Katy, Texas. Part of it, they didn't get any running backs uh, in this previous class. I mean, it was really, you know, there was no quarterbacks, there was no running backs. They really needed to go out and kind of prioritize uh, those positions. But the, what, when we talked to Graham Harrell just, you know, from last spring a year ago, the plan was to run the football more. And I think you started to see that early in the season, but there was a bunch of weird occurrences that happened. First, losing your starting quarterback, game one. Uh, then you were running the ball a little bit more then. But then you get all three of your running backs hurt at one point. Your top three running backs hurt, and you're playing a freshman that you thought you were going to redshirt. Um, so I think there were some weird circumstances. I'm curious to see if they stay somewhat healthy. Is it going to be a 45% run, kind of like what they wanted to do, where it was, it was more leaning towards the pass, especially by the end of the year? You had four games by Keaton Slovis where he threw for 400 yards. So I think they're selling a guy like Brandon Campbell on – First of all, there's not a lot of depth right there. You're going to come in and, and play pretty much right away um, just because there's not a lot of bodies there, but also that they do want to run the ball more in this offense. They just didn't have as many opportunities. So I'm curious to see. I mean, we it would have been good to see the spring, how that you went from year one to year two. All we've heard is that once you guys know the system better, year two is going to be a, a big springboard forward. It already was. I mean, they took a an offense that had talent that just didn't have a direction and was you know ranked in the middle of the country to a you know top five kind of passing offense or top ten offense and that was just in one year with a young you know offensive coordinator and Graham Harrell so I think they had some optimism what they were going to do in uh, in year two of that system we'll have to wait and see but I think running the football was part of what they wanted to do in that plan. Is UCLA making any progress or do USC fans look at UCLA laugh and go back to their own issues? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a big year. I mean, I talked to uh, a buddy that covers UCLA yesterday, and he just wasn't very optimistic uh, on the team. Now, I think they've made some changes, but it's just it's just tough. It's just curious to see what Chip Kelly's doing there. Um, you, know, you just don't know. You you wanted to see some of those elements of the blur that they were running at Oregon, stuff that worked, and it seemed like he was kind of hell bent on just making changes and doing things a different way and. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be working. They're not recruiting the way UCLA could recruit. The whole point of bringing someone like Chip Kelly into a place like UCLA is what do you do with the better players that you can get in Southern California and get them easier? Well, they're not really getting those players. So it's, it's sort of weird that the way they're doing it. It's more of kind of a system thing. We see them be up and, and win some games that maybe they shouldn't win and, and just be down in other games and just not look good. Uh, they haven't won an out-of-conference game yet under Chip Kelly. Like, not a single one. So uh, there, there's, there's, uh, there's upside for UCLA, and I think this could be a good year where if they make some progress and get to a 7-5 and five or 8-win season, that would be big. But that's a pretty big jump from where they are right now. It's just hard to picture them uh, doing that. But, you know, Bruin fans, I don't know. I mean, there's, the reason you hired Chip Kelly is just he was the big guy. Everyone wanted Chip Kelly. It just doesn't seem to be working out right now. So I think I think this year is a big one where they need to make some 
forward progress. Otherwise, you just have to think maybe you need to go in a different direction. So everybody knows, Ryan, that your area there is a hotbed for recruiting, and everybody wants to be in there. You've got to get the players, particularly, obviously, the two locals, but in the conference and the surrounding states. I'm wondering if you were to list the top five schools who are having the most success in terms of recruiting Southern California kids, who would those schools be? I mean, it's a good question. See, the, the thing is, there's a lot of depth in Southern California, and it depends if you're getting, if you're trying to get the elite players, which I think more of the out-of-state, you know, the, the out-of-the-region programs have been doing a really good job. We've seen Alabama come in and get and get players from Southern California. We've seen Clemson come in and, and grab some guys. Ohio State, uh, Texas, I think they've done a good job of cherry-picking, but the teams, I think the, the, the Pac-12 programs probably do the best of recruiting Southern California for depth. And you know, you're seeing like an Arizona State really doing well in programs like that. Of course, you know, the local schools, if you're USC or UCLA, you're getting a lot of players uh, from Southern California. We've seen Oregon has to be up there, uh, you know, coming in and bringing players. Washington, I, I think in general, it's been more of a Pac-12 thing where you're getting a lot of the really good players there. But the problem has been the cherry picking of, of the really elite players going out of state, going out of the region more than we've seen before. And I think some of that has to do with the fall of USC recruiting, where they sort of made it cool for Southern California players to stay, at least in the region. If they didn't go to USC, maybe they go to Utah, Oregon, or Arizona State, wherever. Uh, once USC wasn't recruiting at that high level, I think it opened up the floodgates for the national powers to come in and start taking those players. So I, I think it, it could be shifting a little bit. We'll see if that if that happens. But it's still the depth. I mean, I think the depth of the conference, you're seeing the, the top programs, how they're doing. They're recruiting Southern California well. Uh, but just trying to get some of those elite players, you want to make sure they're not going to, to Alabama, Ohio State. You want them to stay in the Pac-12 if you can. Yeah, certainly you want them, if they don't go to those elite schools, you want them to go to Arizona State, don't you, Ryan? And I'm saying that because I'm an ASU grad. Yeah. <laughs> ASU, I mean, for I was as critical of Herm Edwards as anybody, uh, but you know, and okay, what they're seven to five, seven to five, but you know, they're, I think they've done a lot better job. And to see a guy like Jaden Daniels, who's the highest, I think, the highest ranked recruit uh, ASU had gotten, and and then bringing in a bunch of the uh, wide receivers from Southern California last year uh, to to kind of you know make that a really exciting offense. I think Herm Edwards done a great job, and he's hired. Southern California recruiters. He's got people from the high school ranks. He's got former NFL guys. I think it's just a pretty good mix. And it was, it's unique. You know, it's, they're doing it a different way. And at a place like Arizona State, you always talked about them as like this kind of sleeping giant, the potential to bring in a lot of talent. Obviously, Tempe's a amazing place to recruit to. So, yeah, I think they have one of the, the programs that have done really well, uh, you know, recruiting Southern California. And you have to. And I, I think they've taken it more advantage of USC being down in recruiting than like a UCLA has, and they're right in the same city. Well, Ryan, you've done it. You've triggered Ute fans. I got them. I've got them uh, tweeting. They're tweeting graphics at me right now. Thanks to you. Uh-oh. NFL draft <laughs> what, what picks over get? the NFL draft picks over the last four years, and there's this bar graph: the Utes with 21, Washington with 20, USC with 15, UCLA with 14, all the way down to Arizona with two. PK, the U of A at the bottom of the list. Good. They're they're. I mean, I got USC fans were mad at me on my podcast because I was saying 
Utah's done a much better job of preparing players, of developing players than USC. They haven't had the same recruiting rankings, but they are able to get these guys ready for the NFL. And that's, uh, I mean, I think that's a fact. So, you know, having way more guys at the combine, you know, more guys drafted from Utah this year than USC's had the past two years. I get it. I mean, that's, that's a real thing. And I think we're seeing a, an up, you know, uptick in recruiting as well, being able to, to win the South and things like that. So yeah, I, no, I get it. That's not a, I'm not saying that they're not, they're doing a really good job. Kyle Whittingham does a really good job at that. Ryan, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, it's always good to have you on the show, and we'll talk to you again down the road. It's great talking football. Thanks for having me on. Ryan Abraham, USCfootball.com. Jay Drew, BYU football writer, coming up at the top of the hour on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. It's time to showcase those that are helping all of us through these difficult times. This is a partner profile on the Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, and we are joined now by Jeanette Bott, CEO, Executive Director of the Utah Food Bank. Jeanette, good morning. Good morning. So, Jeanette, I'm, I'm curious. I think we're all curious. We've all seen the headlines. We've seen the lines. We've seen the video from around the country and some here in Utah. How much is demand up for the Utah Food Bank right now? Oh, you know, David, it depends on the area of the state because, of course, it's different based on counties. But for the most part, right here across the Wasatch Front, I think we can safely say it's up about three times where it was two months ago. You do a lot of things in terms of, I don't want to say it fundraising, because it's food raising, basically, uh, races and whatnot. How has that been affected because of what we've got going on? Well, everything that we've had planned for the year has been canceled. Um, that was our gala in May. That will be our golf tournament in June. Uh, then our big race for um, Thanksgiving morning is our 5 and 10K race. Um, and that's in question right now, and that would be the last one this year if we could have that. But uh, quite frankly, we're pretty doubtful that that will happen in, in November as well. PK's usually at the front of the pack, Jeanette, just so you know. <laughs> He's got a good stride. I've run in that race probably five, six, seven years in a row. So what you're telling me is on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I don't got to go to bed early now. Well, maybe you do. Don't 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 change your plans quite yet. Let's be positive okay. for just a little bit longer. All right. So I want to get into a couple things here with you that you have uh, you have drilled into my brain over the years about cash versus cans. But let's start because the uh, Larry H. Miller Company has a food drive going at dealerships, at the theaters, uh, at the parking place uh, northeast of the arena where a lot of people park right near the main entrance at the ballpark where the bees play. Uh, They're collecting food. The benefit of the food drives and the food items you'd be looking for that people can help out today and tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow with that? Well, you know, the, the great thing about a food drive when it's put in this kind of a setting is for the most part, people buy 
what their family would enjoy, and then they donate it to another family, and that's the perfect way to do it. Because if your family likes it, another one will as well. And it also then gives us variety. We buy at such large volume and such quantities of the same item. The food drive really allows us to give families a little bit of a variety in what it is they're planning for their meals. So is that what's going on now? Any other stuff that uh, people can do to help out? You know, we've we've always been we've always talked about three things at the Utah Food Bank: food, time, and money. And you know, food is always a necessity. We're asking people to continue to donate food, whether it's here at the food bank or a pantry in your neighborhood, or even at one of the grocery stores you're shopping at. Most of them have bins by the front door, so food's always appreciated. The time situation is a little bit different. We're not having volunteers in the warehouse. Uh, we haven't had for many weeks, and that's been an interesting change to how we do business. But for the safety and the health of our volunteers and our staff, we made that decision. So. We're hoping, you know, by summer we can have volunteers back here, so we'll need that time eventually, just not right now. So, you know, that brings us to money. And, you know, it's an important job that we recognize our efficiency. And with that, I mean, you can donate the food to us, but we need to be able to get it to San Juan County or get it to, um, to, to Logan or wherever we're going because we're responsible for the entire state. So we have that incredible transportation cost of vehicles, of maintenance, of insurance, of drivers, all the things that come with that logistical part of our business. And the money helps us with that. And then it helps us with with operating costs here at the warehouse. So cash is great for us, but I think the key is to our buying power. When we have to buy product that isn't donated, then our dollar that comes from you, we turn that into $7.66 worth of goods and services. So I can use your dollar, my buying power, and it's a win-win for all involved. So I think a lot of people who are accountants or who are managers in other businesses or own other businesses are thinking, you turn $1 into $7.66, how do you do that? But I guess that comes down to your partnerships with Feeding America, with Grocery Rescue. You're not, you're not paying retail, and, and really you get a lot of food, and the, and the key is just being able to move it. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we always joke and say that, you know, my history as a great shopper would, would come into play someday. I just didn't think it would be this magnitude. And, and actually, my shopping expertise has nothing to do with it. But the fun of it is, is we really do have the ability to use all the resources that you just named. And then all of the in-kind donations that come to us, whether they are food or whether it is the transportation companies that help us, whether it is the discounting fuel, all those things play into that um, Scenario and that formula is, is given to us by Feeding America, so all all food banks can figure out where they stand. So, you know, we're proud of that amount. We're proud of what we we do with the dollars that come to us, and it's important to us to be good stewards of those dollars that donors are, are sending our way. So, for people who want to donate online and, and stretch their dollars and, and cash in on that seven dollars and sixty six cents, where do people go? How do people do that? You know, they can do it a variety of ways. Um, the, the, the program that Larry Miller's hosting, that uh, organization, will let that run through tomorrow. So you can go to their webpage. Um, they're listed at lhm.com. And then uh, if you move into their, their webpage to Driven to Assist, you can find a place with a virtual food drive. You can indicate the product on there that you would like to buy, donate your money there, and then we'll use your money and our buying power. If you don't get to do this in the next couple of days before that's over, you then can come to utahfoodbank.org. We, too, have a virtual food drive page that's up all the time. And, again, you select the product. We use your dollar and our buying power. Jeanette, thanks a lot for your help, and uh, good luck to the food bank uh, going forward here. I know a lot of people are going to be counting on you. 
thank you so much. We appreciate your support, and it's great to speak with you. Have a great day, guys. Jeanette Food Bank. Uh, Jeanette, Jeanette Food Bank. Jeanette Bot. She <laughs> runs the Utah Food Bank, and you can uh, you can help them out online, or you can go to uh, any of the Larry H. Miller dealerships, any of the Megaplex theaters, the ballpark. Or the parking place, parking lot, just kitty corner from the arena and make your donation there today or tomorrow. All right. Jeanette Food Bank. I'll probably be hearing about that going forward. All right. DJ and PK. I just got a text <laughs> yeah. that would cause all kinds of issues. We're not reading it on air. And PK, that, that's not right. DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. And Jay Drew, BYU football writer for the Deseret News, joins us next.